0: Today we're going to deal with the topic of the prayer of intercession. I see the prayer of intercession as probably the most vital uh, area of weaponry in our arsenal of warfare uh, in this world today. The ability to intercede before God for ourselves and for others, for their needs and the circumstances of their life is absolutely essential for it to be effective in prayer. So I hope you'll uh, enjoy this section and join with me as we look at some thoughts concerning it. Remember, I'm dealing in this series with material that I have developed uh, or am developing for a publication later on. And so I'm going to share with you some excerpts and some various things that I've written and thought about in my recent year of preaching on prayer at the church in, in Anaheim. Join with me. By way of introduction, intercession is petitioning the Lord on behalf of someone else. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word God originally was defined as to strike upon. It later came to be associated with the meaning to assail anyone with petitions. When this was done on behalf of another, its sense was to intercede. Now, the New Testament uh, is replete with references to uh, various kinds of exhortations to pray. For instance, James in 5.16 says, pray for each other. In uh, Hebrews 13.8, it says, pray for us. Jesus, of course admonishes us to pray for those who persecute you in Matthew 5.44. So the New Testament writers must have believed that this activity of of intercessory prayer would be effective in changing the attitudes and the conditions and even the lives of others. It was certainly normal in their uh, lifestyle. A study of intercession uh, will point out several things to us about this privilege. First of all, it's natural. It's like breathing in and breathing out. It's it, For Christians, interceding is uh, the natural response to love. Keep in mind that ha- God having given love to us, that we have it to give to others. And in the context of giving and receiving love, we'll want to pray for them and want to meet their needs through prayer. So you'll naturally intercede uh, if you love the Lord. Second of all, one can actually be baptized into a sense of the plight uh, of those for whom he is praying. That is to say there's a a potential of an empathic union with a person. You can sort of get into their skin or wear their shoes for a few moments and, and feel what they're feeling and feeling and see what they're seeing. Now, this is an activity of the Spirit. It's a supernatural presence that can come in intercession. And uh, I've visited there. I've experienced it a few times. And uh, it's something, I've, uh, it's wonderful. I think it's something that every Christian should enjoy and know as part of the whole dynamic of their prayer life. Thirdly, it seems to me that if we're to be effective in prayer, we not only learn learn to intercede, but we can't just pray for uh, a mass of unidentified humanity, uh, for uh, generalities. Intercession almost requires that we get specific and focused and pray for the, uh, the very essence, the very center of the things that we think we need and or that someone else needs in a circumstance or situation. So intercession is very, very vital to our prayer life. As we saw in our very first session together in this series, uh, Jesus is the perfect example or model of intercessory prayer. He interceded while He was here on earth, and He continues to intercede in heaven with His for His brothers and sisters. And my goal in this session is to illustrate from Scripture some of the models of intercessory prayer that are in the Old and the New Testament. In so doing, my hope is that while we that we will be encouraged to put these teachings into practice. Now the question that we all need to ask and answer, I think, that's absolutely vital to this whole issue of, uh, of intercession is, why should we intercede? And the answer to that is because Jesus did it and is doing it. This is what Jesus is ministering today. This is the present-day ministry of Jesus Christ. In the heavenlies, he is interceding before the throne of God for you and I. And so the, the foremost reason is because Jesus intercedes and continues to do it today. He is our model. We've been called then to identify with him and to do what he did. As I've stated on hundreds of occasions, we should be doing the stuff, the stuff that Jesus did. And one aspect of that stuff is his ministry of intercession. In non-theological terms, that means we should be doing what Jesus did. We also need to do what he is doing today. First and most importantly, Jesus is praying today. We tend to confine ourselves in the church today to... The things that we can do uh, in the way of uh, natural activities, the prayer for the sick, the, the, the care for children, the looking after the widows and the fatherless, the, the ministry of, of uh, evangelism, the ministry of teaching, all of these things are, are activities that, that are, really occur on sort of a natural plane. But entering into intercession has both a natural and a supernatural dimension, and we must recognize that it's absolutely essential if we're to be effective in this life. Scripture not only exhorts us to intercede, it tells us why we should do so. Paul tells us in first Timothy, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Now, this is recorded in first Timothy the second chapter verses one and two. There are four words which Paul groups together here. While they overlap in meaning, there's a certain progression in intensity. The third word, intercession, had become a semi-technical term for gaining entrance to the presence of a king in order to submit a petition. How appropriate this term is for believers who, by the Holy Spirit, have access to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Thanksgiving may be included to remind us that gratitude for blessings received is the proper setting for new requests. As we will explain in the session on petition, God God does not need to be informed or persuaded, nor does he have to wait until we have achieved a righteous place in order to give us his good gifts. That all came in the package with Jesus. Under his blood, we are accepted in the Beloved, and he hears our petitions for ourselves and for others. When we petition, we open the door and give God access to meet our needs, and when we intercede, we open the door and give God access to meet the needs of others. So intercession is essential if we're to become effective Christians in our prayer life. Let's look at some of the models in the Old Testament today and uh, deal with them. I want to begin with Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture in that uh, it demonstrates uh, a kind of dialogue with God that I think ought to be normative in our lives as we relate to uh, communicating with God about others. Let me read from a passage in Genesis, the 18th chapter, verses 16 through 33. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked away with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will uh, bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the, out- as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remi- remained staying befo- standing before the Lord. And then Abraham approached him and said, will You sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in that city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked. Treating the righteous and the wicked alike, far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? But if I find forty-five there, he said, I will not destroy it. And once again he said to him, What if forty are found there? And he said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I can find 30 there. And Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? And he said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just one more time. What if only 10 can be found there? And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Now, there are a number of things that we can note from this text, and I want to begin with this, that first of all, the initiative for the intercession appears to be from God. He opened up the subject. He brought the subject into the open with the question of verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? His consideration of Abraham was because of the covenant with them. In verse 19, tells us in this phrase, I have chosen him, that God and Abraham were friends. This phrase can be translated, I have made him my friend. And friends talk about situations which will affect one or both of them. And so God opened up the exchange over the issues of Sodom and Gomorrah and what God was about to do. One friend telling another friend. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that glorious? One friend communicating with another friend about that that he was about to do. Another point that I want you to look at is when Abraham heard what God was considering, he thought God surely would do that which was just. You see, Abraham had a perception of God as being just. It's easy to say that this prayer comes close to haggling, and many have depicted it as such. Many commentators have dealt with that way. But I think the word exploring might be in a more appropriate word. This is the exploration between two confidants, two colleagues, two friends. Abraham is the friend of God. And God has opened up the issue and said, I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if I, if what I suspect to be true is true after I examine them." And Abraham immediately says, well, God, you're just. You wouldn't do that if there were righteous people there. So Abraham had a perception of God that, that, that told him that uh, that uh, this, this subject needed to be explored a little further. And so the dialogue began. We must note that Abraham was intent On having the whole city saved, he wasn't just responding and acting on behalf of his nephew Lot and and Lot's family. He was dealing with the whole city. Abraham wanted to see the whole city saved. His intercession certainly went beyond any personal concern for the family. And so it wasn't just a, a matter of blood ties. It was a matter of recognizing the dynamic of what was going on in that whole city. What can we learn from Abraham's intercession? I think the first thing is that having a relationship with God in which he can call you friend can bring good results and dividends. God spoke first to Abraham. I think that's the second point, is that God opened the intercession. And the successful intercession can, can include dialogue and persistence in dialogue. You know, Abraham, I mean, he at he the last there, he, he was saying, I'm risking your wrath, but I want to talk a little bit more. What if it's only ten? And we see in that a beautiful demonstration of confidence between a man and his God. And God has opened the subject and has dealt with him. The duration of the intercession, furthermore, was not only initiated by God, was de- but determined, determined by God. In verse 17 it's initiated, and then in verse 33 the scripture tells us that when God was finished, not Abraham, but God, God left. And so this this incredible exchange between God and Abraham occurred at God's initiative and was closed at God's initiative. But the dialogue produced dividends. When interceding, we should focus then on specific issues. I think that's another thing that we could draw from this exchange between Abraham and God. Now let's look at another principle in the Old Testament. One of the one of the major, major leaders. This is Moses interceding for Israel, and I'm going to read out of a text in Exodus, the 32nd chapter, verses 11 through 14. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, <clears throat> with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster to your, on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now a further text is found in thirty-one, thirty-two. So Moses went up back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Now this is one of the most stirring intercessory prayers in, in all of Scripture. God has decided to judge these people because they have broken his covenant and deserve the curses of the covenant. Moses bases his prayer on four reasons why God should not pursue his course of action. God implies in verse 7, for instance, that these people belong to Moses. He tells Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. And when Moses begins to intercede in verse 11, that records that Moses reminded God that they were his people. Now, this isn't blame shifting. This is identity. Why should your anger burn against your, your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Again, we see collegiality. Two colleagues, two partners working together. God speaking to Moses, Moses speaking to God, and they're, trying, they're dealing with the issues of identity and relationship. God had redeemed Israel with great power and a mighty hand. In short, it had cost God something to deliver them, and Moses reminds him of that. God would be mocked by the Egyptians if he turned and and killed his children in the desert. This is referenced in verse 12. And again, Moses is reminding him of that. God had promised the forefathers that he would give them descendants in the land. And again, Moses is reminding them of that. The result of this time of intercession is that Yahweh relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, the Revised Standard Version translates the verse with the word uh, uh, "repented." Not infrequently in the Old Testament, it is said uh, to repent, and the basis of God's repenting are simply this. First of all, intercession, as seen in this passage, and in other passages, such as Amos, the seventh chapter, verse one through six. Now, that is to say, God can relent, God can repent of a decision that he's going to make with interaction with his, with his colleagues, with his, with his friends, with his partners, and so you and I have been called into partnership with God and we can communicate with him and, and, and uh, God will restructure and refocus as he relates to his children whom he so dearly loves. Furthermore, another consideration is the repentance of the people. Now, for instance, in Jeremiah 18.3 it talks about this dynamic and we see, we see the whole underlying uh, uh, interaction between God and his people and when God's people repent, there's a softening, a relenting on, on God's part as he reacts to them, and he'll bring about new circumstances because of it. And then last, uh, part of the, uh, last component of this, of course, is the compassion of God's nature. I uh, have other texts here, such as Judges 2.18 and 2 Samuel 24.25, that deal with times in which God's compassion is demonstrated. But it's important for you and I to be informed of the fact that God is a compassionate God, and he will respond to our pleas and our intercessions for others. We must understand that the Hebrew belief that God could repent was based on their view and understanding of God. Their conception of God was not static, as as is often the view of the people in the Western world that we're in. But rather, they conceived God as a dynamic and living person in vital relationship with them, and he was able to respond to their needs. One of my favorite musicals of all time uh, has has a principle in it called Tevia. And Tevye is in dialogue with God. And one of the things I like about Tevye is that he's always explaining everything to God. If the the cow isn't giving good milk, he talks about that. If his daughter's giving him problems, he talks about that. If his wife is on his back, he talks about that. If there are blessings, he talks about that. If there are cursings, he talks about that. He's in constant dialogue because he sees God in relationship to him. Now... Uh, the most important thing that, that you and I need to to, to grasp is that, uh, like Tevya and Fiddler on the Roof, we have to enter into a relationship in which we see God in relationship with us. And we can dialogue with him. And not something static and far off and immovable that can't be changed, but somebody that is personal and dynamic and living that will relate to us. The story continues as Moses went down the mountain and returned to camp. And the sight he saw was not a pretty one. He saw their sin and he and, and it... Uh, was pointed out to them in uh, verse 29. The next day he went back to God to intercede again. Now, can you imagine going back under the, the reality that the children have, have betrayed the, 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 the trust of the Father? And he's going back knowing that they've sinned, and yet he's going back with a determination to communicate. And he sought to lay hold of God's mercy on behalf of his children. In similar circumstances, we may have acted the same way. Moses did. Condemning people for their sin. But we have prayed like Moses, asking God to forgive their sin, and if God could not, then request that God blot me out of the book you have written. God forgave them, but he still punished them. We need not, uh, we need not only uh, forgiveness for our sins, but we need the forgiveness of sins for others. And we need the forgiveness and we need the consequences of our sin blotted out. And so Moses so loved the people that he said, if you're going to do them in, do me in too. Well, it's not a place that I've come to yet, but it's something that was in his heart. What instruction does this story give us concerning intercessory prayer? Well, first of all, it teaches us that we can remind God of the reasons that he should show mercy. In dialogue with God, we can say, hey, look, this is what you promised, this is what you've done, and this is what you ought to do about it. It teaches us that intercessory prayer does open the avenue for God to move on behalf of others. Furthermore, it teaches us that intercessory prayer can cause us to desire to place ourselves in a position to receive the very punishment that the others deserve that we don't just because we love them and we are interceding for them. And so there are, uh, are many others in the uh, scripture. Let me give you one more quickly. Uh, Samuel, in, in 1 Samuel 15, 11 said, I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instruction. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Now, Samuel is interceding and in this, in this one little sentence. We get a picture, a glimpse of his heartbreak as Saul is turned against the Lord. This one little sentence can easily be passed over, but I've chosen to share some of the pathos that can be involved in intercessory prayer. Samuel had relayed a message from the Lord to Saul. This is referenced in 15.1, and Saul decided not to obey it. This is referenced in 15.7-9. through God's word came to Samuel against Saul's action, which had grieved him, And he was sorry he had made Saul king. This is in 1511. In this 11th verse, the the, the scripture tells us Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. It's my opinion that Samuel prayed for Saul all night long with some agony involved. If he was praying for Saul in a positive sense, the text is silent. And then the answer of his petition was no, as in verses 16 through 19 declare. Crying. Agony and other emotive responses can and do happen when one is interceding in prayer. They should not be sought or shunned. They simply should be allowed to occur as God deems necessary. By that I mean intercession can put you through the ringer. You can be at a place where uh, out of concern and care for someone else that you you can feel your pain, you can feel the pain of God, you can feel the wrath of God, you can feel the justice and the righteousness of God, you can sense the mercy of God. Sometimes, in a matter of a few moments of agonizing prayer, you can, you can go through a whole gamut of emotional response that's just incredible. And on the a- aftermath, know that, that something that has not yet in fact worked out has already worked out in the spirit realm. That is to say, having gone before God, you already know in your spirit that 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 you uh, have uh, called out for, it, interceded for it, has come to pass. God can let you know. God can let you experience it. And then you can rest while the circumstances and calendar of life work out so that the very thing that you've asked for comes to pass. Intercession. Absolutely essential if we're to be effective. I'd encourage you. Learn to intercede. Get into it. Recognize that God can be communicated with. He will respond. He's your friend. He's your colleague. He's your partner. He's commissioned you to do work. Interact with him. Before we leave this subject of uh, intercession in the Old Testament, I'd like to allude to a passage that's found in Daniel, the 10th chapter, verses 1 through 11. This is the interaction in which Daniel has gone before God and is interceding. In Daniel, the 10th chapter, verses 1 through 11, it reads this. Excuse me. Chapters 10, 1 through 11, 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was also called Belshazzar, its message was true, and it concerned a great war, and the understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no cho- choice food, and no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lo- lotions all at all until the three weeks were over. On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed uh, overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. And so I was left alone, gazing at the great vision. I had no strength left, and my face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. And then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him I fell in a deep sleep my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words that I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he did this to me, I stood trembling. When he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me twenty-one days, and then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. When he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. And I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, O man, highly esteemed, he said, Peace, be strong now, be strong. And when he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. So he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what was written in the book of truth. No one supports me against that them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I Uh, took my stand to support and protect him. Now, this passage deals with the whole issue of intercession in a very graphic way. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon uh, Daniel as a result of this first encounter, a revelation that had been given in this vision. And as a result, he goes into a time of deep anguish in which he mourns for three weeks. Uh, The interaction is accompanied by not eating any, uh, as it says, choice food, meaning he didn't eat anything other than very plain or or, uh, basic food. He he would eat a little bread, a little water, that type of thing, to keep himself sustained. He said no wine touched his lips. He didn't uh, go to the baths and and prepare himself in any special way for social encounter. He was sheltered away, uh, uh, separated as it were. And in the dynamic of that experience, an, an angelic being appears before him and communicates with him. And this, this whole experience is, has sort of uh, supernatural tones to it. As we see Daniel trembling before the presence of this being, trembling in his touch, uh, the, the words there are very strong, very graphic. He, uh, he, at one point he goes into a trance as he receives more communication. So this whole thing is a visitation of the Spirit. It's, a, uh, it's an intercessory dynamic that uh, few people uh, ever enter into, but Daniel definitely has here in this passage. Now, in the context of this, it, uh, the, the Scripture explains that the key to earthly victory can only be found in heavenly events. That is to say, as there is a dynamic on earth in which Daniel is being interacted with, there's also something going on above the earth, as we'll see as we look at the passage. The idea of beings which are over nations is recorded in the intertestamental books and may have as its origin the notion found in Deuteronomy 32.8, which says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of Israel. Now, on the surface, this passage doesn't seem to say that. But several other texts, and you need to to look at your footnotes if you have a New International Version, uh, have the uh, for the term sons of Israel have sons of God instead of sons of Israel. The term sons of God in the Old Testament often means angelic beings. If this view is true, it implies that all the nations of the earth are given over into the control of angelic powers, but Israel alone was reserved for God alone. Now Daniel prayed and fasted for three weeks, and during that three-week period, the answer to his prayer was detained by the prince of the Persian kingdom. This is referenced in verse 13. In light of the above, there was an angelic being and this angelic being was, was interacting with another angelic being and uh, w- was being detained by them. This confirms what the Old Testament as a whole seems to make clear. That is to say that nations and people are God's concern. And the book of Daniel goes further and says that the nations and their earthly rulers are in the power of forces beyond themselves, which are often antagonistic to the people of God and threaten this, to subvert the very purposes of God on earth. However, we may wish to interpret these forces. The truth remains that nations appear to develop their own personalities, which may be an extension of this uh, principality and power or demonic personality which can govern it, as in the case of the prince over Persia. The tenor of this story implies that the heavenly hosts in their conflict need the support of earthly intercessors. You see, Uh, While the conflict was going on uh, with the the angelic beings, there was uh, a dynamic of intercession going on on earth. At the same time, we need to recognize that earthly people of God in their conflict have the help of heavenly hosts. And so uh, there's at least two realms, two arenas of, of, uh, of experience going on here simultaneously. The most important aspect of this revelation, in my opinion, is that the conflicts and tensions between earthly powers and the people of God are reflected in the heavenly realm and are also being fought for out there. More more remarkable than that is the fact that Daniel's most intense agony, when he fasted and prayed with great conflict of being, took place during the period of a great struggle in heaven between Michael and the prince of Persia. Michael won, but the implication is that Daniel, in his sensitivity to what was going on in the other realm, was caught up in this conflict. He was able to participate in it through his prayers. It's as if the angelic messenger wanted Daniel to continue praying the entire time, the heavenly conflict lasted because he had no other support to help him. We can understand from this passage that in the heavenly sphere, there is some kind of participation in the conflict and the trouble on earth. On the other hand, in the earthly sphere, uh, especially through the intercession of the people of God, there can be a participation in working out of destiny on a much more cosmic scale than is often understood and practiced. In summary, the intercession lesson that we can learn from Daniel is that God does hear our prayer from the very first day that Daniel sought the Lord. An answer was, was coming. It was on its way. And so we need to keep that in mind. Second of all, that, that that answer was detained not because God wasn't interested and didn't send an answer, but simply because there was a conflict above the earth. Now, I don't know if that's true in, in every kind of prayer situation, but it was true in this kind of situation. So it gives us some insight into the possibilities of why some prayers, prayer answers are detained. Furthermore, supernatural phenomena can accompany intercessory prayer. I think there are times when, it's, when it's, we're t- entirely devoid of it. We, we pray in our minds and we pray rationally and we pray cognitively and, and it's, a, it's a, an exchange that has very little emotion and very little... It's not tempered by anything in the way of emotional response or supernatural response. But on other occasions, there can be times of visitation in which a, an intercessory grip can come upon people. And they can go through period, prolonged periods of fasting and agonizing before God. And it can be uh, broken intermittently with uh, dreams and visions and, and tongues and interpretations and prophecies and revelatory uh, passages of scriptures brought to mind. And, and God can interact and communicate that way. So whatever characterizes your intercession isn't the goal. It's the, the goal is intercession. But from time to time these things can occur. But they're not to be sought. They just occur as a byproduct of intercession. So you're just to get down to interceding, whatever occurs in the aftermath. Now let's look at a New Testament passage that's very helpful. This is found in Ephesians, the first chapter, verses 15 through 23, and it uh, it deals with Paul interceding for the Asian believers. is incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he uh, exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way." Now, in this passage, Paul shares a personal praise to God for the full spiritual blessings which his readers received in Christ. In the section we're looking at, Paul intercedes for those saints that that they may know the extent of their full spiritual blessing in Christ. That is to say, the focal point of his intercession is that the revelation of God would come in, in his fullness to the saints. There are two marks which characterize the churches to which Paul is writing in this letter, in first of all, in first fifteen. The first was faith in Christ, which means faithfulness or loyalty to Christ, and the second was love toward the saints. And so his focal point is praying for people to love God more and to love one another more. Does that sound familiar? It certainly was the focal point of much of the Lord Jesus' prayer for the body of Christ. Paul then shares this intercessory prayer, which he continues to pray for these churches. We often conclude that the, time, uh, the same rule applies when we intercede, which applies to fasting. For instance, that we do not share with anyone, and especially not with the one for whom we are interceding, that we are in fact praying for him. But Paul doesn't seem to worry about that. Here he is uh, interceding for people on paper. They're going to receive their their intercession. They're going to know that, that in this occasion, as well as outside of this occasion, that he's interceding. Uh, with specific goals in mind. He wants to see them grow in their knowledge and understanding of the Lord and his love and their care for one another. Now, in the context of developing this, first he, he prays that his readers might be given a spirit of wisdom. Now, wisdom may be defined here in the knowledge which seems sees into the heart of the things which knows them as they really are. So, Paul's desire for these believers is that they would see and know things as God sees and knows them. They'd enter into his wisdom and his understanding. A second kind of request is a spirit of revelation. And in my opinion, in this text, revelation means to uncover. So Paul intercedes for these believers that they may have uncovered for them the things which God wishes to reveal to them. And lastly, Paul's intercession for these gifts from God is so that they may know him better. This means a full knowledge of God as compared with one's first awareness or superficial acquaintance. And so we see Paul interceding uh, with the goal that his readers might be given wisdom and revelation and and uh, per- more personal knowledge of God. Now, a second area is he prays for his readers that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. To be enlightened is the ancient world meant to be in the process of understanding. He continued to pray that you may know. This is the RSV Uh, rendering of the term what is the hope to which he has called you that is to say this is the work of the father and the explanation of this is given to us in Paul's praise as referenced in 1 3 through 6 so he's calling them that they may know the hope of what they've been called to and he's calling out to God that that this may be revealed to them in an ever increasing way now this will provide all kinds of motivation for them as you and I understand what it is that God's called us to be and do It'll motivate us. It'll turn us on. It'll encourage us. And so this is a prayer that was not only good for the Ephesian believers, but it's good for you and I today. Furthermore, he wants them to know what are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints. That is to say, uh, and this is the work of the Son, the explanation of this is given in verses 7 through 10. And so he wants them to know the riches of their uh, of their inheritance. So what it means to be a child of God, what it means to have relationship. So he's praying specifically for that purpose. And he wants them furthermore to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe. And uh this is the work of the Spirit. So we see the Father, the Trinity working here, the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. And the explanation of this is given in in 1, 11 through 14 in which Paul uses three strong words in relationship to the work of the Spirit. He uses power and, and working, and, and, and uh, the power and working of us in his might or in his great might. So they want, Paul wants the believer, these Ephesian believers, to understand, experience, know, relate to the, the, the incredible outworking of his Spirit that's been worked into them as a result of these marvelous things that have been done. Why is Paul using such strong words? Because he's thinking of the one supreme occasion in which the power of God was exerted. This was accomplished in Christ when he was raised from the dead and made him sit at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now, what can we learn from this illustration of intercession? First of all, communication with those for whom we are interceding may benefit them. That is to say, you can intercede for people, and it's also okay to tell them that you're interceding for them. And what you're interceding for in their lives. Second of all, intercession can be spiritual blessings. It can be for the purpose of spiritual blessings. And uh, I think maybe it ought to almost always be for spiritual blessings. That w- that, uh, in terms of the eternal, uh, the most important thing you and I can do is know who we are in Christ and what what it means to be in the inheritance of the saints and and to uh, have further and fuller revelation of God and his work in the world and and on and on and on. I think another thing that we can draw from this is that Paul is an example of intercession. The beginning of most of his letters, and you you can go through nearly all the uh, letters he's written, uh, will begin and close with intercessions, references to intercessions, and to various other kinds of prayers. And... It's, it's granted. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was normative to the letter writing processes of that day, but it was also illustrative of the fact that Paul prayed continually for the saints. Now, to summarize about this whole issue of, of intercession, let me say this: Intercession can be initiated and terminated by God. We saw that in the exchange between Moses and God. Furthermore, intercession should be focused on one thing at a time, and we see that. In all of these intercessions, he's, they're all focusing for specific issues, communicating over specific issues. Intercession may call us to a place ourselves in a position to re, that we might receive what another deserves, as in the case of Moses, where he said, Well, if you're going to blot them out, blot me out also. That's the height of empathic union.